Well, we are in our new sermon series, The Story of Everything. It's a walk through the entire Bible from start to finish, and we're marching along with E100, which is this daily Bible reading challenge, broken up into 20 weeks of five readings. Each week covers a particular topic, and our preaching series will track the E100 readings by preaching on one of the readings from the upcoming week, as well as giving some framing to the group of the readings as a whole. So last week was In the Beginning, and on Sunday we heard Bishop Jenny preach about creation and how work was built into creation. And if you followed along with the E100 readings this past week, you'll have encountered stories from the beginning of time, the creation of the world, the defining sin of humanity, the judgment of God in the flood, the scattering of the nations at the Tower of Babel, the covenant with Noah. Stories that aren't necessarily literal historical accounts, but which were inspired by God, which are the Word of God, that give us a sense of who God is and who we are and where we come from. Now, in the week ahead, the readings are about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the three patriarchs, the founding fathers of the Israelites, the Jewish people, living roughly 4,000 years ago in 2000 BC. So we're talking about the beginnings of recorded history here. Abraham the father, Isaac his son, and Jacob his son. Jacob, who was also known as Israel, and Jacob who had 12 sons from whom the 12 tribes of Israel would descend. So why are Abraham and Isaac and Jacob part of the essential 100 readings in the Bible? Why do they get a whole week, one-twentieth of our attention? Well, it's precisely because we believe that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world because He's the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, Israel, which is God's chosen people. That is, God's love for the world doesn't just suddenly begin when Jesus walks onto the scene. Rather, Jesus is the culmination of a long history of God's love in and for the world through God's people, Israel. And though God is love, and God has always loved, Jesus is in many ways the answer to a promise that's made explicit for the first time to Abraham a promise which was extended to and carried through Abraham's son Isaac and his son Jacob and to the children of Jacob, which were Israel. And that's why Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were essential. In fact, we could spend weeks on them, and we wouldn't even begin to do them justice. That's how important they are, because in the founding fathers of Israel, we can see the origin of God's promises and God's faithfulness to these promises that eventually, over such a long period of time, culminates in Jesus to achieve the blessing, the salvation of the whole world. So that's what you're going to read about this week in E100, God's promise that leads to Jesus. It's going to be a great week. But today, we're going to focus in on Abraham because he's where it all starts. The story of Abraham runs across a dozen chapters in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, Genesis chapters 12 to 24. And if you have the time to read the whole arc this week, do it because it's incredible stuff. But the highlights selected for E100 drill down on two particular moments in Abraham's life that epitomize God's faithfulness. The first is God's call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. 
At that point, Abraham, at that point, like in a reading today, he's called Abram. How he got the name Abraham is another story. The Bible's amazing. Anyway, Abraham, who was Abram at that point, is just a random guy hanging out in Ur of the Chaldeans, or what's present-day southern Iraq. And then out of nowhere, God talks to him. The Bible doesn't tell us why God picked Abram, just that he did, which is bonkers when you think about it. God a universe, bigger than big, suddenly talking to this one guy, smaller than small, in this one time, in this one place. And what God says to Abram is this. He says, go from your country and your kindred to the fa- to your, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, leave home and family. I'll give you a new home and a new family. I'll bless you and your family. And here's the kicker, because this is not just, oh, I'm going to make your life good. No, he's saying, through you, through your family, all families will be blessed. That's the arc of the promise that God sets before Abram. And if you're a Christian, you think that that blessing, that blessing of the whole earth, all of the families of the earth, happened through Jesus the Christ, a descendant of Abraham, Messiah and Savior of Abraham's children. So in Genesis 12, Abram up and goes. He leaves home with his wife Sarai and his extended household, and he travels to what's present-day Israel and Palestine. And I have to skip over a lot of the story here because we only have so much time, but the upshot is that decades pass by. And Abram does really well for himself. He gets rich, he gets powerful, but he and Sarai don't have a child. And they get old, they get too old to have kids. And that's what brings us to our reading today in Genesis 15. Because a family for Abram, that was the core of God's promise back in old Ur of the Chaldeans. That's why he left home. So his bank account might be flush, great, but if there's no family, then the God who called Abram was really just a voice in his head. If there's no kids, then Abram's life has been a lie. He's built his life on a promise that never really existed in the first place. Which brings us to Genesis 15. What we're seeing here in Genesis 15 is God doing a sort of check-in with Abram on the status of that promise that he made. Because it's not at all clear to Abram, at least at this point, how that promise is going to be kept. He and Sarai are physically too old to have children. He needs some reassurance. He needs a miracle. And this divine check-in, this reaffirmation of vows, so to speak, happens in two stages. And I invite you to follow along in your own Bible or on your Bible app. The first is told in chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. And the second is 7, verses 7 to 21. So the first part first, verses 1 to 6. So after these things, verse 1, that's referring to a military victory that Abram's just won in the previous chapter. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And the word tries to reassure Abram, fear not, I'm your shield, your reward will be great. But in verse 2, Abram talks back to God. The first time in his life, at least the first time we see him doing it in Scripture. He's gone decades doing what God has told him, and he's never talked back until now. Because the promise seems unbelievable. So maybe he's testing, like, all right, let's have a little chat, me and the voice. Because if it's God, maybe I still get the promise. And if it's not God, then who cares what I say to it? Desperate men don't mince words. 
And he says, verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The implication here is I continue to the grave. I'm, I'm dying this way. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You've given me no kids, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now remember that Abram has vast wealth. This is, he's not a nuclear family. He's not living him and Sarai in their little one-bedroom apartment. He has extended household. He has an extended household, including many, many people. And Eliezer would have been Abram's most senior servant, sort of a cross between a chief of staff and a property manager, basically an extremely powerful figure in the household, and he would have been the likeliest person to take Abram's property if he died. And no offense to Eliezer, but Abram wasn't wanting to leave all of this to his butler. So verse 4, God talks back. He says, no, your very own son will be your heir. And then God says, come on outside. Look at the night sky. See the stars? And if you've ever been up north, away from the light pollution of the city, and you look up and it, the stars are so thick, it looks like somebody spilled flour on an indigo tablecloth. That's what this was like. Number the stars, God says. That's how your offspring will be. And here's verse 6, arguably one of the most important verses in the whole of the Bible. Abram believed the Lord, and God reckoned it, God credited it, God counted it as righteousness. This is a fundamental theological tenet of Christianity, that our faith, our trust in God counts for us as the righteousness that all of us lack. Me, you, all of us. None of us is good enough, but we can all believe. And our belief, our trust in God is counted as righteousness. And Abram is the first to do it. He's the first to believe like this. In a real way, he's the father of faith. Well, so this so far, so good. This is a pleasant story. But now it gets dark and weird. Now we're looking at verses 7 to 21. Some time has passed. Maybe it's just the next day. We don't know. But verse 6 happened at night. He's looking up at the stars. And if you glance down to verse 12, we see the sun setting. So we're talking about at least two days here in verses 1 to 6 and 7 to 21. And here in verse 7, God is talking to Abram again. He's affirming the other part of the promise that he made when he called Abram way back when, that the land would belong to his children. This is important because Abram lived in an unstable world. Entire people groups could be displaced and erased, and maybe not so much has changed after all. If Abram didn't have children, there would be nobody to inherit. But if God kept that promise about offspring, where would they be? Would they have a place? It's an important question for Abram. So here in verse 8, like verse 2, we see Abram talking back, and he asks a question, how can I know? How can I know that they will inherit the land? If you give me a child, well, the proof's in the pudding, but how will I know that they will have a place prepared for them? And God tells him what to do. And bear with me here because this gets extra. God tells Abram to bring to God, tells Abram to bring to him five animals, a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And what that means, bring to me, is sacrifice. So Abram does it. He kills the animals and cuts them in half lengthwise, and he spreads the halves apart, and he puts the birds opposite each other. And let's get real. This is unpleasant to think about. This violates our sensibilities. This violates about a dozen municipal health codes and federal statutes about animal protection. But this is also 4,000 years ago. So let's park our judgment for one minute and figure out what's going on. 
What Abram's doing here was a form of ancient ritual that established a covenant, a binding agreement between two parties. They'd cut animals in two, and then both parties would walk between them and say, may it be to me like these animals if I break the promise. The verb for making a covenant, uh, a binding agreement, was literally to cut. You cut a covenant. So when Abram says, how do I know I get the land? And God says, go get the animals. What God's saying is, let's make this official. Now, does God need animal sacrifice to make a serious promise? No. But is that how Abram's culture made serious promises? Yes. So God bent down to Abram to promise in a way that mattered for Abram, like how to make a super-duper promise with a kid you'd spit in your palm and shake with them, even though that's totally gross. So Abram gets the animals ready, but then what? To seal the deal, both parties are supposed to walk through the gap. They're supposed to walk through the blood. But where's God? And time passes, enough that vultures find the scent. Abram has to chase them off. Maybe hours, just Abram sitting by a ditch full of blood, wondering what on earth he's doing, doubting. And then dusk comes. Verse 12, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And this sleep, it's not a natural sleep. The connotation here is more like medical anesthesia. And a deep and terrifying darkness descended on him. He's, oh, he's asleep, but he's aware. He's, it's a waking dream. Have you ever dreamed like that? You're, you're asleep, but you also know what's going on, and you're scared. He can hear, and he can see the Lord. And, and God says, your offspring will be enslaved in a foreign land. And they will suffer, but I will not forget them. And I will judge, and I will bring them out in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What a hard saying this is. What a hard saying this is. Because God's saying he'll take care of Abram's children, but their journey is not going to be without pain. And, and the Amorites, the idea that there would be a people of increasing wickedness and it needed to be complete, that they needed to descend to the depths of where they were going to be as a people before the Israelites displaced them, along with every other nation mentioned in the last verses, that, that is hard to hear. Because nothing about this scene is hospitable to the way that we are inclined to think or talk about God and our culture today. Our popular notions of divinity align so perfectly with the therapeutic goals of our culture. I could never believe in a God who would do insert thing I don't like. So we might like a God who shows us a pretty night sky, but not so much the God who appears in this nightmare of darkness and blood and fear. This God speaking of slavery and judgment, of generations living and dying without satisfaction. And yet here is the God of the Bible. Here is the God of Jesus Christ. And I find this strangely comforting. Because it tells me that God doesn't simply show up when things are good and clean. And I thank God for that because most of life is not good or clean. We gather to worship on land stolen by genocide, inspired and justified by the example of the children of Israel who displaced the nations to claim their territory. Our walls are marked at this church with the remembrance of just a few of the millions Tens, hundreds of millions who died in the wars of the last century. A God who ran from blood and fear 
would steer well clear of earth. But this story shows us a God who is with us and in our midst from the beginning. A God who passes as smoke and fire through the blood-filled ditch of human history, the terrifying darkness of our history. Just as he will eventually lead the children of Abraham out of Egypt as a column of smoke by day and a column of fire by night. A God who cuts a covenant of faithfulness and takes all of it on himself. Did you notice that part? Did you notice that Abram never does his part? He never fulfills his end of the bargain. He never walks through the animals. He never cuts the covenant. He's struck senseless, terrified, overcome. He's overcome by the God who says, I will be faithful to what I have spoken. Overcome by the God who, as Scripture elsewhere said, swore by himself because he had nothing greater to swear by. Overcome by a God who is not safe and not comfortable, but true. And Abram believed. He had faith. Scripture says elsewhere that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And by faith, Abram and his children, Scripture says, followed God outside of what was comfortable, outside of what was safe. And they died in faith, Scripture says, having seen the things promised and greeted them from afar. Isn't that a lovely image? Like, greeted them from afar, like shouting to a long-missed loved one who's running up the front path to meet you at the door. And Scripture says they didn't receive the things promised because God willed that without us, without those who would come after them, they should not be made complete. I want you to hear that. Because 4,000 years ago, when God made a promise to Abram, God was also waiting for you. This is the God of the Bible. And this is the story that the Bible invites you into. Because the Bible that we're reading through is not a book that you hold, but a world and a word that holds you, that you get to enter. So open it this week. Open it this week and, and simply ask as you do, humbly, whatever words come naturally to you, that, that the God who showed up for Abram would be present. That holy presence would be with you in a living way. Because God kept the promises he made to Abram. He gave him a child, Isaac. He gave his offspring land. And he did all of this in the unfathomable outworking of his love for creation. That in the fullness of time, God might bring forth Jesus into the world. Jesus the Christ. God in the flesh. Who would walk through the slaughter and blood and dirt of humanity. Who cut a covenant by offering up his own flesh where the promise to Abram would finally be made good, fulfilled to overflowing. The promise of a line, the children of Abraham, the children of faith, innumerable as the stars, and the promise of land, which is their eternal home with God. That is a promise thousands of years old that was made for you. Promises kept and more than kept, a promise that can be trusted beyond your wildest imagining. Amen.